Great, thank you very much, Lucy, for reading that so well. And uh, I always start everything I do with saying I'll read to everyone. It is lovely to see you here in uh, Benwell. Um, if you haven't uh, met me before, uh, my name's Craig Bryant. Um, I attend Jesmond Parish Church um, over the other side of the city. Uh, but as you can probably guess, no, I'm not from Jesmond. Um, <laughs> I'm from Gateshead. And actually, I'm from Wickham. Uh, we just moved into a house in Wickham just over the river two weeks ago, and from our bedroom window, we can uh, see this church really clearly. We can see the dome. Um, so it's lovely to be reminded of you all, um, sort of every morning when I, when I get up, reminded to pray for you, um, and just, just pray for you to seek and live for Jesus um, and minister to this area of Newcastle. But I actually spend a lot of time in this area of Newcastle. Um, I don't know about you, but what is your favourite takeaway? Um, do you like, love a nice greasy pizza, uh, a Chinese, or a mild curry that definitely shouldn't be allowed to be even called a curry because it's that mild? Uh, for me, my favourite of all cuisines is Lebanese. I mean, when I was at uni in Newcastle, I became acquainted with Lebanese food for the first time and it just blew my mind. Um, it's, it's quite a, like, a lot like other Middle Eastern cuisine. So you've got a lot of chicken, a lot of wraps, a lot of cheese. And then five years ago, one of my mates came up to us and went, there's this place on the West Road next to Asda on Mill Lane. Uh, it's called Shwarma Fatouche. And I fell in love. I fell in love at first sight. My usual order consists of a, a shishtaug wrap, that's little cubes of chicken that are char-grilled, uh, which I think do take the biscuit over shawarma chicken. Shawarma's that stuff that rotates around, and I just don't really want to know how long that thing's been up there, to be honest with you. In the wrap, you get pickles. I like to add a little bit of halloumi cheese. That just, it's brilliant for the textures, to be honest with you. Uh, and then I get a side of the best chips going. They're so nice. And the piers de resistance, sambusek cheese. Oh, think cheese pasty but 100 times better. Beautiful, absolutely lush. Just out of interest in this room, hands up if you've ever been to shawarma fatouche before. Oh, there's actually quite a few people. That's fantastic. <laughs> that, could have, that could have died. I, I, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. I have to say, though, I am their best customer, no doubt. I kept them afloat in COVID. Um, it's just a dangerous mixture of really good food and really, really cheap. Um, and then I got married last year to my wife, Rachel. And she raised my love of shawarma fatouche. Um, it was actually pretty early on in our relationship she raised it. She was concerned I loved it a little bit too much. She then started to speak to me about the jeans that uh, the dryer just kept shrinking my jeans all of the time. I don't know how it kept happening. But she's convinced there's, there's a link between the shish wraps and my jean size. But now that we're, we're married, she rightly quoting the Bible at me as well, says that she has some sort of say over how I look after myself. She wanted me to throw off my old, single, takeaway, obsessed self and become the new man, the new married man that I was supposed to be. She, she wanted me to start living like the married man I am. And believe it or not, that conversation reminded me so much of what Paul has to say. <laughs> Such a long intro. Reminded me so much of what Paul has to say to us in this passage this evening. Uh, I know you've been looking through the book of Colossians, as Ken was saying there, in the evening services. 
I was here last week when Ben spoke to us uh, from the, the end of chapter two. The whole book of Colossians, so it's, it's good to get a bit of, um, yeah, just, just thinking about the whole book as a whole, uh, getting with bearings. Uh, the, the book of Colossians can be split into three sections. So the first one, just the very start of chapter one, is Paul basically discussing personal matters that he has with the, with the church in Colossae. The second is Paul instructing the church on sound doctrine. So that is what Christians should believe. And in particular, what they should believe about Jesus. So that occurs from the end of chapter one all the way through until the end of chapter two, culminating in what we saw last week, uh, where Paul was basically putting to death this idea that being religious enough gets you right with God. It says this in, in verse 23 of chapter two. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom that's doing good religious things and promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And it's at this point we flip into section three of the book of Colossians, and it starts in chapter three. And section three is, is all about Paul exhorting the church. That word exhort literally means to strongly encourage or urge somebody to do something. And he's encouraging them about practical things, about practical matters. Basically, this section is Paul's plea for us to live as Christians in a sinful world and what it looks like to do that. So please have your Bibles open in front of you, um, if you haven't already, as we look together at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17 of Colossians. So I'm just going to read over what it says again from verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And if we just pause at that point there for a moment, you might just be getting a little bit of a thought. You might be sitting there thinking, I thought being a Christian was about trusting in Jesus and all he has done to save us. I thought because Jesus died and he rose from the dead that we are saved. In fact, isn't that what Paul was saying to us at the end of chapter two, what Ben was talking to us about last week? Being religious, you know, doing good things, not doing bad things. Isn't that all worthless? It's all about believing in Jesus and him forgiving you from your sin, yeah? Yet now, Paul is telling us to do stuff, to behave in a certain way. First one is to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above, verses one and two. And two, we're to then put to death what is earthly in us, verse five. 
And then we get a long list of all the sorts of things that we're supposed to put to death. And he says again in verse 8, we're to put them all away. It sounds a lot like religion, doesn't it? That thing that Ben told us in the last chapter that, we can't, that can't save us. How do we reconcile this with the previous chapter uh, and what it was saying about doing good and bad things? Well, that's our first point for this evening. Number one, behaving as a Christian doesn't save you. So notice the presupposition at the start of verse one. It says this, if you have then been raised with Christ, dot, dot, dot. Think of this as like the key phrase and, and the rest, almost like the rest of this chapter, the rest of the book is almost like in brackets after this. This is the key phrase of this chapter. And in this point sort of summarizes what the Apostle Paul's entire thought is on the subject of Christian living. If then you have been raised with Christ. This is where Paul decisively puts to death any of our remaining thoughts about being a good person contributes to our salvation. Absolutely not. This chapter is not Paul's step-by-step guide on how to be a good enough Christian to get into heaven. It's pretty much the exact opposite of that because it's all framed in that first verse. If then you have been raised with Christ. No one has any merit when it comes to this because none of us can raise ourselves from the dead. Last month, uh, I got a call uh, when, when me and my wife were in Northern Ireland. That's where she's from. Um, and it was from my dad. Uh, I saw you, you know them calls when you know something's up and you're like, he ran twice in a row. So I answered it and he, and he, and he was telling us about my granddad. And blessing, my granddad had a, had a fall. He'd actually only fallen from the very bottom stair in his, t- his two-story house. And it, as he fell, he, he hit his face uh, where his sinuses are, off where the, the telephone was kept. And uh, my dad was a bit upset, and he made it clear to me the prognosis uh, wasn't going to be good. So we flew back the next day. I drove straight to the RVI from Newcastle Airport, and my granddad was, was still unconscious, um, and, and this air had been getting through the sinuses, and it was getting into his brain uh, from a fracture. And the consultant had performed an operation on him uh, to fix the fracture, but then the air started getting in again. The RVI is rated second or third best hospital in the whole of the UK. The Freeman is the other one that sort of swaps places with it. That's amazing, isn't it? And the team on the intensive care unit it were absolutely phenomenal. I mean, like, world-class. Not just in skill and technique, but in technology, the medicine that they had available, but also they were just really empathetic. They were excellent. But this consultant was clear. My granddad was never going to recover from that fall. My dad and his two siblings agreed it would be best to withdraw his treatment the next day. And we, we spent the day by his bedside. It was, it was actually weirdly lovely, actually. Um, my granddad only has three children and two grandchildren, me and my cousin Ellie. So we were all allowed in around his bedside. And yeah, we just got to hold his hand and, and speak with him. And his breathing began to slow. And then at six o'clock later that day, on the dot, he died. And I'm not sure where he stood personally with Christ, actually. 
Uh, but I got to read scripture over him. I got to pray. None of my family go to church. So it's actually lovely. I sort of asked their permission for it. And they allowed that. And then the nurse, just after he died, I'll always remember this for the rest of my life now, probably. He, he died and she went, can we just have 15 minutes, you know, just to make the bedroom and that look nice for him. So we went into another room and we came back 15 minutes later. And it really cemented the view that I already had that we as human beings are more than just bodies. We are spiritual beings too, because my granddad wasn't there anymore. His body was, but he wasn't there anymore. No one, not even the second best hospital in one of the most developed countries in the world, had the power to raise him from the dead. He was dead. Yet Paul's teaching on Christian living is firmly cemented in the amazing truth that one person, God himself, demonstrated he defeated death. Three days, I mean like not 15 minutes later, three days after his brutal execution on the cross, the followers went to Jesus' tomb and they were expecting to find a dead body like I was expecting to find in my granddad's room. But what did they find? They found the empty tomb. And on many occasions, the risen Christ, his resurrection, in his resurrection body, revealed himself to many people. Thomas, one of his followers, touched the holes where the nails had gone through his wrists to hold him on the cross. And then there was Paul. Paul who wrote this book that we're looking at tonight. Paul was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians who has ever lived. He literally killed Christians for fun. He was one of the most devoutly religious religious men that you'd ever meet and then he met the risen Jesus and everything changed and then we see what Paul's experience the, the one who then authors this book that we're looking at tonight his own experience of the resurrection Jesus perforates into this chapter and into this book resurrection hope in salvation only through Jesus Christ is what is needed to save us so then Point two, when we're saved, we should want to behave as a Christian. So religious living has no ability to save us, only trusting in the resurrected Jesus who can raise us from spiritual and physical death. He can save us. But then the other age-old question comes up. I know uh, the youth in the room, they've got their encounter Bible study straight after the service tonight. And I'm going to steal one of your big questions that I know is on your lips. Uh, and it's probably the exact same question that all the adults in this room have got, but they're just too scared to ask, to be honest with you. And it's this question. If I'm saved, then why can't I just live as I want? It's a great question. Actually, it's one that Paul rhetorically asks um, and answers in another one of his books in Romans uh, chapter 6 says this, it should be on the screen. Um, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I love the consistency here in Scripture because this is a really 
difficult and easy to misunderstand concept, isn't it? And, and the concept, um, yeah, in our, in our passage in Romans, it, it revolves around the resurrected Jesus. And the concept is this. Doing good and also not sinning is the right thing to do. But by doing them, it doesn't give us any credit with God to make him want to save us. So we don't do good works to earn salvation. We are saved to do good works. See it in action. Look down at verse 4 back in Colossians again. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming in these you two once walked when you were living in them. We now start to see why the resurrection is so important to living as a Christian. Because verse 4 clearly says, when Christ, who is your life. This is harking back to that second section in Colossians that, uh, that, we, that we looked at before. The, the second section is all about doctrinal truth. What it means, what, what we should believe as a Christian. And here Paul is directly applying the doctrine of the resurrected Christ, the truth of that, to the life of a Christian and how we should live. This should transform the way that we look at ourselves and our lives. This verse is saying something transformational. It's saying you are someone else when you become a Christian. That may be hard for us to believe. Uh, when we see the reality of our lives, you know, we, pro we profess to trust in Jesus as our saviour, yet our actions can sometimes just really discourage us, can't they? Have you ever felt like that? For some of us, this can be even harder. You can start to think, well, am I really saved? If I keep up, keep on messing up time and time again, well, this is where we need to reaffirm the doctrinal truth of what it means to be saved. We are saved first. There is no good in us that makes us acceptable enough in the sight of God to be saved. And we'll look at that a little bit more in the next point. But we'll, we'll just go back to that question that the guys in the encounter are definitely asking later on. Well, why can't I just live as I want as a Christian? Well, the answer is in verse four. If Christ is your life, then the old you, the old man or woman, a boy or girl, that old person is dead. That is a remarkable thing to think of. Paul says something similar in yet another of his letters. Look at, this, look at the consistency in scripture here. In his letter to the Ephesians, chapter two, verse one, it says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But even when we were dead in our trespasses, Christ made us alive uh, together. God made us alive together with Christ, sorry. By grace, you have been saved. This is a remarkable claim in the Bible, that without God, you are dead. I didn't feel dead when I was 17, when I wasn't a Christian. Those around you, who you love, who don't profess faith in Jesus, they don't look dead, do they? They seem just as alive as me or you. 
They are capable of good and evil, just like me and you. In fact, many non-Christians are just really lovely people and we love some of them really deeply. And the Bible is saying to you tonight in this room, if you don't trust in Jesus, it's making a bold and offensive claim that you are dead. Do not think that me as a preacher or this church in Benwell are just condemning you. Oh no, none of us, me included, are better than anyone else in this room, whether we are a Christian or not. None of us are good enough to earn salvation. We've just looked at that in verse one. Christians need to be raised from the dead with Christ. We couldn't do that ourselves, so nobody is better than each other. But that still leaves this harsh reality that God says is true for everyone. Without Jesus, we are dead. This is not physical death. Lord will lead to that eventually. Rather, this is a status. Without Jesus, you cannot be saved. You cannot do anything to save yourself. But God says there is a way out of this death, this eternal death. And it's through faith in the resurrected, death-defeating Savior, Jesus Christ. And what Jesus simply says here is... Live like your new status. If you're a Christian, live like your new status. When God tells you to put on these list of good works, don't be tempted that the gospel has changed into a gospel of works. It hasn't. He's just making the point that if you're a Christian, you are a new creation. Your old self is dead. You are born again with a heart that wants to please God. And you will fail when you do this, this side of heaven. But these, the, the affections of your heart, the things that you love deep down that you want to do, you can't do it perfectly, that has fundamentally changed when you become a Christian. Therefore, it is impossible for a true Christian to actively live as they please after they've been saved because that old man or woman, boy or girl, is dead. That moves us nicely on to my third point. Number three, remember you're a forgiven sinner when you sin as a Christian. It is, it is one of the most discouraging parts of being a Christian, isn't it? When you understand what God wants for you, you really understand it, and deep down you probably really do want to do it, and you know what it looks like to obey him, and then you fall into sin. Look at that list of things we're supposed to put away. Verse five, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. Verse eight, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Verse nine, lying. I don't know about you, but when I see that list, I just see my own failure all over it. As a supposed new man, I still fall into them. Do you feel that way? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Look down with me at the end of verse nine. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is the tension that we find ourselves living in this world. 
Some people describe this as the now and not yet tension. The now and not yet. It's similar to the way that Jesus refers to his kingdom. So he says both the kingdom has come and the kingdom will come in the future tense. It's now, but not yet. And we live in, in this tension, but genuine Christians, we need not let this discourage us. Verse 10 speaks of that new self already being put on, but it also says that it is being renewed. A process, an ongoing process of renewal into the image of God. This is exactly what that weird Bible word, you know, get all them weird Bible words in here, don't you? You never see them anywhere else. Sanctification. I only heard that for the first time when I was like 18. No idea what it meant. But all that word means is the process of being made into the image of God. Always remember, our status as saved children of God comes first. I've labored that point time and time again. But we do live in the now and not yet. And that moves us on finally uh, to a shorter point, the final point for this evening, number four. The glorious reality of living in the new self. Let's read again the final verses just to get them fresh in our minds. Verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you ever think of the Christian life like Ned Flanders? There's a picture up there going to come on. There he is there, Ned Flanders. Uh, some of you will know exactly who I'm on about. Some of you are far too young. Some of you might be a bit too old to know who Ned Flanders is as well. Uh, but Ned Flanders, for, for those who don't know him, uh, he's in The Simpsons, and he is the next-door neighbor of Homer and the rest of the, the main family in that. And Ned is a devout Christian, and the way he's portrayed can just really start to shape our own perceptions of the Christian life. He is a massive square. Like, he's overly nice, and like, how, how real is his niceness? Um, how sincere is he? That's a bit questionable. But as Homer, Marge, Bart, Lisa, and Maggie live their ordinary, non-Christian lives next door, it just must be easy for them to dismiss the gospel. Because even in all the chaos in their own lives, it seems like they're, they're full, far, full of far more joy than Ned Flanders and Rod and Todd next door. All too often, we can have that Ned Flanders picture in our heads when it comes to living the Christian life. It seems like everyone out there is doing what they want, having a great time, not bothered about what others think, and we think they're living life to the full. Brothers and sisters, let's be transformed 
in our thinking of what the good life looks like tonight. Being obedient to God isn't a limitation on our joy and fullness of life. It actually makes true joy possible. Living for Jesus is living life to the full. Imagine for a second this church, if we all put on the the new self in full, if this place was full of compassion, if we were all kind, humble, putting others first in everything we did, if we bared with each other in our weaknesses, imagine a church full of people willing to forgive each other when they've been wronged. Now I know St. Joseph's, and don't worry, I'm not saying that you don't do this in part. This is a wonderful church, full of great Bible teaching, full of godly people, growing in their knowledge and love of Jesus Christ and making him known to Newcastle. This is a place where people do strive to be those things. But imagine a church where this was done more fully, where it was done fully. That's the good life, isn't it? That's not Ned Flanders. This isn't just a call to be nice. This is a call to be holy. And see in those verses the expectation of sin even amongst Christians. It speaks of the reality that we find ourselves in. Why would God tell us to forgive one another if there wasn't anything to be forgiven? This is a blueprint for living in the now and not yet. How glorious is it to see the goodness of the gospel hit the reality of our messy lives in these verses tonight. So as we finish, I don't want the message ringing in your minds and hearts as you leave to be, oh, I just need to do better. I need to be nicer. I need to do less sin. We need to remember that if we trust in Jesus, we have been raised from death to life. Our salvation is totally secure because it all comes from God's deep love and mercy for us. Our new reality is that of a saved sinner, fully justified, being sanctified, weird Bible word again, becoming more like Jesus, but also living in the now and not yet, in a messy world where we're looking forward to when we're going to be glorified with Jesus forever, where our new selves will be washed clean and made white as snow. Let's pray as we finish. Father God, thank you so much for this passage this evening. We often struggle and mix up our obedience to you and our salvation. Lord, help us uh, to live as saved sinners in this sinful world. Help us by your spirit to put on the new self. Help us to realize it's not about trying harder to be good, but instead turning to Jesus and asking for his help. So help us as we go into this week to put on the new self in everything that we do trusting that our salvation is fully secure in the death and resurrection of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.